Acts chapter 23 is where we are. We're going to pray. Uh, we are in the middle of a story, uh, an account of the Apostle Paul's life. Let's pray. Father, do give us insight into your word. Lord, you obviously know what we are discovering is that we are in the middle of sort of a historical text, just some information about some events that occurred in a man's life 2,000 years ago, and yet we believe, as your word teaches, that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for us, that it trains us, it teaches us, it disciplines us. Lord, it guides us in the way you would have us to go, and so, Lord, we believe that about this text as well. And so we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, you would challenge us, you'd comfort us, you'd give us insight into how we are to live. Lord, you'd use your word. That's our prayer. Use your word. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, we are in the middle here of this experience of the Apostle Paul. He's in Jerusalem, and so this is the middle of his experiences there in that particular city. It was all the way back in chapter 21. Here we are in chapter 23. It was all the way back in chapter 21 that Paul returned from his third missionary journey. Now, Jerusalem's not where his missionary journey began. So this is kind of the last stop on the missionary journey, presumably before he heads back to his home, which had been in Syrian Antioch. Now, he hadn't been there for like five years, but that's kind of where his sending church sent him out from. But as he's wrapping up this missionary journey, he wants to get to Jerusalem for a variety of different reasons. We talked about that. He wanted to bring a financial gift to the Christians there in Jerusalem. He had taken that collection from a number of the Gentile churches and the communities that he had been, and he wanted to bring that to them. They were dealing with a famine and things like that. He also uh, wanted to celebrate the feasts that were there, and so he was a follower of Christ, but that, meant he, that didn't mean that he abandoned his Jewish faith, and so he wanted to celebrate those feasts that he felt comfortable celebrating. He wanted to do that, but I think first and foremost, his primary reason for wanting to get to Jerusalem was that he might reach his brethren, his, the Jewish uh, people, his friends. He had been where they currently were, and he wanted to go and talk to them, preach to them, that their hearts might be open and they might, they might receive Christ as Messiah as well. And as we saw last time together, he got the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, to testify about Jesus, uh, maybe not in the manner he would have liked, rather than you know take the platform and go ahead and talk to the folks. Uh, he finds himself essentially in custody. He's in the middle of a riot. People are looking to kill him and to beat him to death, all these things. But even in that, he had the opportunity to testify. We read this in chapter 21, verse 34. Now some in the crowd were shouting one thing, and some were shouting another. And as, he, as the tribune could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered instead for Paul to be brought into the barracks. Then got, things got so violent that it seemed they were pulling, ripping Paul apart, pulling him one direction or the other. And so that, like the Secret Service coming in and whisking away the president, they had to kind of lift him up and get him out of there to a place of safety. And so in Jerusalem now, at the temple now, Paul's had a couple of opportunities to testify about the work that God had done in, the, in his life. And unfortunately, none of those efforts resulted, as far as we know, none of those efforts resulted in the way that Paul was probably hoping. 
that people would be converted, that people would come to the faith. We have no record that anyone was impacted by his words in that particular way. And instead of a mass conversion of people coming forward, Paul ends up in jail. He ends up in the custody of the Roman soldiers. He ends up in the barracks. And so today now we pick up in chapter 23, verse 7. We read this last week, but we'll pick up there just to give us the context. Chapter 23, verse 7. It says, now when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I'll remind you that the assembly we're talking about is the Sanhedrin, the council, the the Jewish Supreme Court uh, of first century Jerusalem. And Paul made some statements that divided that assembly. Verse 8, for the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, there's no angels, there are no spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge each one of those. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party, they stood up and they contended sharply, saying, we find nothing wrong in this man. And so what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And when the dissension became violent again, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. You know, and so as I look at Paul here during his trip to Jerusalem, just really over less than a a week, really, and kind of all of these fireworks are really just the last couple of days, I look at it and I think, poor Paul, because nothing is turning out the way that Paul was hoping. I have the opportunity to, to speak to the most influential Jewish people. If I can win them, then they can go and win all of the people that they influence in their lives, and nothing is turning out the way he wants Every time he has the opportunity to talk, it ends up with a fight and with a riot and him now ending up in a prison cell. And as we were closing our time last week, I pointed out that this must have been a very difficult time for the Apostle Paul, sitting alone in a prison cell late at night thinking, I have blown it, I failed, I had an opportunity, uh, and you know, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, if I would have said this, if I would have said that. And of course, as we saw last week, that's when the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, the Lord Jesus himself in a vision came and spoke. And he met Paul there in the darkness of that prison cell. Look at this wonderful verse again, verse 11 of chapter 23. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and he said, take courage, Paul, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There in that dark, dreary prison cell, both physically dark and dreary, emotionally, spiritually dark and dreary for the Apostle Paul, the, the Lord came and gave him encouragement. He said, he, he said literally, cheer up, Paul. Take courage, Paul. Don't be afraid, Paul. Don't be dejected, Paul. You haven't failed in this mission. You were faithful. And that's what God calls us all to be, faithful. And sometimes in our faithfulness, there's an effectiveness And other times, nothing seems to happen. But what the Lord is looking at in our lives is, have you been faithful? Did you do what I asked you to do? I'll take care of the results. You take care of the responsibility that I put before you. But I'll take care of the results. All I need you to do is be faithful. And Paul did that. And Paul, the Lord says to him, Paul, you you did it so well that I'm going to hire you for another mission. You know, like that Tom Cruise kind of stuff. You know, if you choose to accept this, I'm going to give you another mission. I want you to go to Rome. And I want you to testify in Rome. And there's a part of me that wonders if, like, Rome? Like, Paul got a little excited when he heard Rome. I'm sure he enjoyed hearing, you didn't fail, Paul. But when he heard Rome, because Rome had been 
the desire of Paul's heart for decades. He wanted to get to Rome. You remember during, we, when we studied this, if you've been with us as we've been studying through Acts, you may recall that on Paul's first missionary journey, remember he went to Cyprus, that island, and he basically hit every single village he came to because every single village needed to hear. Somewhere during the second missionary journey, Paul's um, strategy, I guess you might say, changed. And he went from, I'm just going to hit every single one, and he began to focus on the largest cities. And he began to go there. And we, we postulated, you know, we don't really know, but we kind of drew some inferences that Paul's thinking might have been, if I can go there, I can win the most number of people who can then go other places and reach people. Something changed in Paul's strategy. And so he began to go to cities like Ephesus that had 330,000 people. He began to go to cities like Corinth, which had a large number of people, high population in that particular day. Well, Rome was the center of it all. Rome had an estimate about a million people living in the city of Rome at that particular point of time. All of the government officials came out of Rome, essentially. Merchants went through Rome. Everybody went through, everything went through Rome. And it had been this desire of Paul's, I got to get to Rome. Because if I can win Rome, we can win the world. And so he wants to get there. Paul wrote this in uh, Romans chapter 1, the book of Romans. He said this, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you. So he's writing it to the Romans. Always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, and that is that we may together mutually be encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. So look what he says about Rome. He says that I may at last succeed in coming to you, to your city. He says, I long to see you. He was desperate. He really wanted to get there uh, to the city of Rome. And now the Lord says to him, you've been faithful to me here in Jerusalem now I need you to be faithful to me in the city of Rome. And I imagine there was a stirring in the Apostle Paul. The Lord is promising him he's going to get there. Now tomorrow he's going to be dragged out in front of a, an angry crowd. That's what he thinks perhaps is going to happen to him. But he has nothing to fear any longer. Because God made him a promise. You're going to go to Rome and you're going to testify to me in Rome. It, now, let's be honest, it may not be according to the fashion that he thought. He thought he would be in charge of himself. He would buy a ticket on a boat. He would go at his own pace to get there. In reality, he was put on a Roman boat in shackles and taken there as a prisoner of Rome, but it was a free trip uh, at the very least, so that's not so bad. Uh, and so he, he's going to eventually get there, maybe not the way that he anticipated. He's going to go there as a prisoner and have the opportunity to testify to maybe the most important city in all of the world in that particular day. So let's uh, continue. We're going to pick up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 23. It says this. Now when it was day, the Jews made a plot, and they bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, until they had killed Paul. Now remember, we're still in Jerusalem, and he's in a prison. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. 
Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, the commander, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Again, an interesting portion, portion of scripture that we have and we're about to enter into, because in this portion of scripture, we have really no mention of God, no mention of Jesus, no mention of the way of salvation, no mention of redemption by Jesus's blood. We don't have really any great spiritual doctrinal truth. We really just have some historical information that is, uh, that is um, given to us, an historical incident. And yet, as I prayed, we know that all scripture is useful for us. Paul writes in another place that it's God-breathed. It's from God himself, given to us to train us, to teach us, to correct us where need be. And so with that, we look at sort of this historical information that really has no mention of God, and we're reminded, for instance, of the book of Esther. Now, a lot of you have read the book of Esther, and maybe you're familiar. No mention of God. No, his name is never used in the entire book. But if you've read the book, you know he's all over that book, correct? And the same thing here we see with the Apostle Paul. There may be no mention of God in this interaction, but God is all over this interaction, and he's working. The picture that I like to have in mind is the way that people that are playing chess are moving the chess pieces. And you watch somebody that's a little bit skilled at it, and you're like, why would they make that move? And they're over here on this side doing something, but they have a plan. They know what they're doing, and they're moving that guy to open up this guy who's going to move that guy. And that's what the Lord is going to be doing here in the Apostle Paul's life. He's going to be working behind the scenes to get Paul to the place that he needs to get the Apostle Paul. And God does the same thing in our lives. No writing in the sky necessarily, no lightning bolts or all this kind of stuff. In just a very, very natural way, God works, and more often than not, we look back and we say, man, look at God's hand there. Look what God did. But moving forward and moving in it, we had no clue what God was doing because he just works his way behind the scene, the providence of the Lord. And so where verse 12 begins, we learn of a group of 40 men that formed a conspiracy. You've heard of the term zealots uh, in our studies of the Gospels. Uh, zealots were those that essentially wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Uh, they were willing to die for their faith if need be. Um, they might be akin to a terrorist. You might think of them as a terrorist. Uh, this men are of that ilk. They're ready to kill the Apostle Paul. And if it means they're going to die in the process, that's okay. Because the mission is more important than me. And so these guys, they take an oath. It says they bound themselves by an oath. They're not going to eat anything or drink anything. That's very serious, that you're not going to eat anything. I guess it's more important to me than it is to you. Nobody responds. But we're not going to eat anything until this deed is done. That seems odd to me. They go to the chief priest. The chief priest doesn't respond by saying, don't talk that way. We don't murder people. We're religious people. Rather, they're going to murder Paul because they are religious people. I find that interesting. Now, in first century Judaism, under certain circumstances, the Jews regarded murder as justifiable. And so if a man was a public danger, it was justifiable. If uh, to, like he was having an impact on a culture in a negative way, to some Jews, it was justifiable. And so Paul here, in their estimation, was such a person. He could be put to death and God would be okay with that, pleased with that. 
And so this group of men, 40 of them, they take a vow, it's called a harem, to kill the apostle Paul, believing that they were doing the will of God by doing so. And once more, this is about the third time now in the last couple of chapters during Paul's time in Jerusalem, once more we have an example of a group of people that have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're fired up, they're committed, they want to do what God would have them to do, but they're doing it in the wrong way. They think they're doing God's will, but they're not. And again, Paul knows how they feel. What did Paul say in Romans 10? He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Notice there, Paul says, I bear them witness. Again, we might translate that. Look, I know where they're coming from. I've been there myself. I've done, I did the same things or at least similar things as these guys are now doing. And so, of course, zeal is good. Commitment is good. Devotion to a cause is good. But that zeal, that devotion, that commitment, all of those things have to be influenced by truth. And truth is only found absolutely in the word of God. And so zeal and devotion by themselves, they can never make a person right with God. And so here is a group of people very zealous. They're willing to take a vow. They're not going to eat anything or drink anything. They're willing to die if need be to see this thing through. And in their zeal, it's not according to knowledge. And so they've taken an oath. They develop a plan. The plan's going to involve the chief priest. We see that there in verse 14. It's going to involve the elders. That, that means members of the Sanhedrin. Go back to the tribune. Tell him you want to interview Paul again. You want to put Paul kind of on trial again. You want to find out what he's doing uh, again. And then as they're parading Paul down, you'll probably have a couple of sleepy-eyed soldiers with Paul not really paying attention. And then the 40 of us will jump them. We'll kill the apostle. Maybe we'll kill the soldiers in the process. Maybe one or two of us will die in the process. But the problem will be solved. That's the plan. Bring Paul in. And honestly, it's a plan that probably would work. If they didn't mind dying for it, they probably could have got this thing done. But the Lord, not mentioned, but the Lord intervenes here, which I find to be so cool. I really do. I'm excited about it. Maybe you're not, but I am. Um, the Lord intervenes here, uh, and that starts in verse 16. It says, now the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of their ambush. And so he went and he entered the barracks uh, and he told Paul. So he had access to Paul, visitation rights of some sorts. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions and he said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and he brought him to the tribune and he said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me, to bring this young man to you, he has something to say to you. The tribune took the, the young man by the hand, the boy by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said this, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as, they, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. And have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent 
And so the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Here we have again, God working behind the scenes. The phrase that we might use is God's providential care. And God's providential care is an important principle for us as Christians to be familiar with, to know, uh, and to look toward in our Christian walks or in our lives that we have. God's providential care is that God governs in the affairs of men and women. God governs in your lives or in your life and in my life. At the United States Constitutional Convention, now I'm mixing a little history. It's what I did for a long time. But at the U.S. Convention, Constitutional Convention, this is the summer of 1787. Some of you know things weren't going so well with the convention. There was a lot of infighting uh, amongst the attendees. It got so bad that the convention, some people started going home. Some of the attendees started going home. And the, the convention itself threatened to break up. And then the senior statesman, Benjamin Franklin, who was near his 80s, most people were in their 40s and 50s there, some even younger, but Benjamin Franklin, he stood up and he addressed the convention president. He said this, he said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid. Now, it's an interesting statement by Franklin because he wasn't even a believer, a Christian believer. He was a deist, and the, the general idea of deism is that God got everything going, and now he's hands off. And yet here is Franklin referencing God governing in the affairs of men. He went on then to say this. His solution was, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that duty or in that service. Now, the convention president accepted Franklin's suggestion. He suspended meetings for a week, he, this was the end of June. He resumed them on July 4th, but with no deliberations. The July 4th meeting was a sermon by one of those local pastors about God's providence. That pastor did what he was asked to do. He preached that particular sermon. And then from that day on, July 5th on, they opened every session with a time of prayer led by a local minister. Now, here's my point. Some of you are wondering, I'm sure. When the delegates returned on July 5th, they didn't come to that room down there in Philadelphia, and there wasn't a table in the front of the room where magically a constitution had appeared. And so they went to God for, in prayer, God, we need your help, and God didn't respond by giving them a constitution. That day didn't look much different than the days that had gone before them. Because God does not, and he did not, intervene in that particular way. Rather, here's what changed. The delegates, they continued working hard for an additional 10 weeks to form the document that we now know to be the United States Constitution. But what was different pre-July 4th from post-July 4th was that the delegates now had submitted themselves to God's providential work in and through them. Returning to the passage here in Acts, that's how God is working to free the Apostle Paul. 
they submitted themselves to God, God began to work in them in a different way than he had before. Paul is submitting himself to God, and behind the scenes, the chess pieces, God is moving. Does that make sense where we're going? And so before looking at that, I, I do want to say this. God can work in miraculous ways. You remember back in early Acts, Acts chapter 12, when Peter was in jail? What did God do with Peter? There was a prayer meeting. People were desperate. God, you got to get him out of there. They had just killed James. It looks like Peter's going to be next. And that night, an angel comes to Peter, pokes him on the belly there, at the side, gets, arouses Peter. The gates start opening. Peter walks out of the prison cell and is free in the city of Jerusalem. That's a miracle. And that's how God worked. But here in the instance of the Apostle Paul, we don't have an outward supernatural miracle taking place. Correct? Some of you have read ahead. I told you not to. But some of you have read ahead. You've ruined the story. A surprise for yourselves. And it's not some miraculous thing that we, we might look to and say that's supernatural. But in a very natural way, God was working behind the scenes. Even as I would suggest he was doing so at that constitutional convention. And so here, what does he use? A young boy. Look at verse 16. It says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and so he went, and he entered the barracks, and he told Paul. Now it just so happened that Paul's nephew was in the city of Jerusalem. And it just so happened that he was in earshot of these conspirators. And it just so happened that those conspirators let down their guard so that this kid that was sitting there could overhear what it was they were saying. It just so happened. And I'm emphasizing that because, of course, nothing in Scripture and nothing in our lives just so happens. The Lord is in charge of all of these things. And he was in charge of this scenario as self. None of these things are by accident. None of these things are mere coincidence. God had promised Paul that he would go to Rome so that he could proclaim him there, testify of Jesus there. And so God had to get Paul to Rome. And if these conspirators were successful in killing Paul, that would hinder that, correct? You with me? And God chose here to use a young boy. Maybe not what you would expect, is it? But God can use the oddest of things, the smallest of things, the simplest of things, the most unexpected of things to speak into our lives and to accomplish his purposes. And we see that here. Now, like the delegates at the Constitutional Convention, some of you are thinking, enough with the Constitutional Convention. But like the delegates at that convention, Paul doesn't just sit back and wait for God to deliver him in some miraculous way. He doesn't just sit back and say, well, I, don't worry about it, kid. God promised me I'd be safe, and so everything's fine. No, what does Paul do? He gets now to work. He takes the information that this kid gave to him, and he go, has him go to the centurion. He says, tell the centurion you need to speak to the tribune, and so on and so forth. Verse 17, Paul called one of those centurions, and he said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell you. He doesn't just sit back and say, look, I'm invincible. I have God's promise. Nobody's going to kill me. I have to make it to the city of Rome. Rather, he saw the deliverance of the information that was given to him 
as the means by which he was going to be delivered from those conspirators. And so he acted on that. And so God sometimes works in the miraculous, like he did with Peter. More often, he works through our common sense. And so Paul gets this information. Common sense says, I better tell somebody in charge about that information. He got a tip, and he shared that tip with the powers that be. I was reading Henry Ironside, and I appreciate Henry or Harry as his friends know him. I'm not his friend. Um, he's long dead. But he had this interesting quote that included the word gumption. And that's always been one of my favorite words, and so it caught my attention. He defines gumption this way, just good, common, ordinary sense. That's how he defines gumption. Maybe you define it differently. But he said this. He said, now abideth these three, grit, grace, and gumption. But the greatest of these is gumption. And again, he defines it as just good, common sense. Paul got information, a tip, and common sense says, tell somebody in charge about this so that you will be safe. And sometimes we say, well, no, I'm just looking for the miracles. That is God's miracle. The fact that that kid was sitting at that room underneath that window to hear those people say those things, that was God's miracle. And Paul is acting on that. And so having the information that could protect him, he informs the centurion. The centurion is going to tell the tribune, verse 18. And so he, the centurion, took the nephew and he brought him to the tribune. He said, Paul, the prisoner, called me, asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. Verse 19, the tribune then took him by the hand and going aside, he asked him privately, privately what it is that you have to tell me? Verse 20, he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council, but don't be persuaded by them for there's more than 40 of them that plan to ambush him and to kill him. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing a little. And finally, verse 22, so the tribune dismissed the young man, and he said, don't tell anyone about this, or you'll be a marked boy. They'll want to kill you, so just be quiet about this. Verse 23 continues, then he called two of the centurions. The centurions led a group of how many each? Class, 100 each. You can see century there in the word. And so he called two of the centurions, and he said, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, I've mentioned this a few times. Maybe you know the answer. The Tribune's number one responsibility in this case, in the city of Jerusalem, keep public order. Very good. Excellent. You don't have to memorize the verses. Those of you that got that right, good for you. But his number one responsibility was to keep public order. Now you have, he has a tip, a credible tip, that 40 people are going to try and kill a prisoner in Roman custody, in his custody. And so he takes the matter very, very seriously. As you can see, he goes all out. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. And their job is going to be to get Paul out of Jerusalem, out of this community with this very high population of Jewish people, very um, zealous Jewish people, get him out of there under the cover of darkness. You can see in verse 23, it speaks of the third hour of the night. The third hour of the night was between 9 p.m. and uh, between uh, midnight and 3 uh, a.m. All right, middle of the night. They're going to get him out of there. The Tribune, he raises a cohort, 
470 trained Roman soldiers. And notice Paul, I assume, is going to be smack dab in the middle of all of those men. Notice doing what? On a mount, that means he's going to be riding a horse. So Paul doesn't even have to walk to Caesarea, which is like 100 miles away. He's allowed to now go by horse, sitting on top of a horse, to go from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, Verse 24 tells us that. That's not bad. He gets to go in style uh, to Caesarea. Now, what's the tribune's motivation? Almost certainly, he wants to keep his job. All right, he wants to prove to the Roman officials, like, I, I can do this job. People aren't going to take advantage of me. Does he go a little bit overboard? Probably. 470 people. But he goes a little bit overboard here. But he wants to make sure that uh, his reputation is maintained with his Roman superiors. And yes, Paul is a prisoner. And you might say, well, what do I care? He's just a Jewish prisoner. Doesn't matter to me. But Paul was also a Roman citizen, which meant it was this tribune's obligation to make sure that Paul got a fair trial. And so he mobilizes here this small army. He's going to take Paul safely to the governor. That's what's going on in the tribune's mind. I have a job to do. I need to make sure I'm getting it done. But again, God's moving the chess pieces. And God's working in the heart and in the mind of this tribune to accomplish the purposes of God, to get Paul safely out of Jerusalem to Caesarea and ultimately to Rome. God is at work behind the scenes. And it's almost like God is trying to exaggerate how he is at work behind the scenes by giving almost 500 people to make sure that Paul gets there. But the Lord was going to be faithful to Paul. He was going to be faithful to his promises. And he goes over the top even to show that. The tribune sends Paul, as we see in verse 24, to Caesarea. Now Caesarea, named after Caesar, as you can see it there, This particular one, there's a few different Caesareas. This one is called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the Sea. It's located right on the coast uh, of the Mediterranean Sea um, there in the area of Israel, um, kind of northern Israel, not too far today from places like Haifa and Tel Aviv, not too far from there. When we go to Israel, this is oftentimes the first place that we go to. So if you've been on the trip, Remember the first place we went to? You were probably jet lag. But that's Caesarea Maritima. It's an area of Judea. Now, for the Jews, the spiritual headquarters, the in some regard political headquarters for the Jews was Jerusalem. For the Romans, it was Caesarea. Caesarea is where the seat of government resided, and that's why Felix the governor is going to be there at this particular city. He is the person that is in charge of the region of Judea. His name, as we have here, is Governor Felix. And so, with a military escort, the tribune, we're going to learn his name in verse 25, uh, 26, I should say. His name is Claudius Lysias. We've been talking about him for three weeks. This is the first time we learn his name. Claudius Lysias is going to write a letter, send it with Paul, with the 470 men, Uh, and give that to Governor Felix. And this is what the letter said. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. 
Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found out that he was being accused about questions of their Jewish law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, the Tribune, he got most of the facts correct. You guys, many of you were here last week. He forgot, of course, to mention that the having learned that Paul was a Roman citizen was after he had bound the Apostle Paul and it was about, about to whip the Apostle Paul. He forgot to mention that in his particular letter. But for the most part, he's gotten the facts of the story accurate. I have this guy. Uh, he's under this trial. I couldn't get the information. Now they want to kill him. I need to get him out of there uh, so that you can hold the trial in a safer place. Verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and they brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. Now, mention is made there of Antipatris in verse 31. Antipatris was a city outside of Jerusalem. It was about 40 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was in the Judean wilderness. The wilderness there is the desert area. It was kind of in the Judean. uh, It wasn't a big city. Um, 40 miles from Jerusalem, about 20 miles from Caesarea. William Barclay, the commentator, he said this, Up to Antipatris, the country was dangerous and inhabited by the Jews. After that, the country was open and flat, quite unsuited for any ambush and largely inhabited by Gentiles. And the reason I bring that up is uh, that's the reason why in verse 32 they send a, a large portion of the troops back to Jerusalem. They got them through the dangerous place. They got them through the areas that had rocks and bushes and trees or whatever that they could hide from. And they got them to kind of the open land that wasn't really very much populated with Jews, but more so with Gentiles. And they said, look, we don't need all 470 of us to go the rest of this um, trip. And so they sent the portion that the the verse there says that they they sent back. And Paul, as it says at the end of that verse, 33, I guess it is, that he, he makes it to Caesarea. So the plot of the 40 assassins has failed. And you have to wonder, did they ever break the vow? You know, did they ever grab, you know, a little Snickers or something? Uh, and say, ah, forget it, you know, it didn't work. You have to imagine that they eventually violated their oath, but their, their plot failed, and Paul is safely now in Caesarea. Verse 34, now on reading the letter, the governor asked what province Paul was from. And when the governor had learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, all right, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Now, I, I picture the scene this way. Paul being paraded in a large courtyard. Initially, all the soldiers and the horses and all these people, they're kind of coming in, and then they gradually sort of shift off to the side, and now Paul is front and center standing there in front of go- the governor. One of the soldiers hands a letter from Clid- uh, Claudius Lysias, gives it to the governor, the governor kind of reads it, it's not that long a letter, he kind of reads it, he looks at Paul, he looks down, he looks at Paul, and he says to him, where are you from? 
And he said, well, I'm from Cilicia. Now remember, originally Paul is from Tarsus. Tarsus is a city in the region of Cilicia. Jerusalem is a city in the region of Judea. And so here we are in Caesarea, a city in the region of Judea. And he says, where are you from? And he says, well, I'm from Tarsus, from the region of Cilicia. And for whatever reason, because that wasn't his region as governor, he says, all right, I'll give you a listen. I'll, I'll weigh in on whether I think you're innocent or whether I think you're guilty. Again, that's not his region. It wasn't what he had jurisdiction over. Perhaps he thought, well, if he's from Cilicia, uh, maybe he mentioned Tarsus as well. All right, this is probably an educated guy. And much like the Tribune, he said, yeah, all right, I'd like to listen to this guy, see what he has to say. Either way, he says, look, when your accusers come, I'll give you a trial. And we'll hear uh, what they have uh, to say as well. When they come, we're going to learn they don't come for two years. Um, I know. Can you believe it? Like, hey, man, I'm sitting here. Now, notice where it says Paul was. It says he was kept in the praetorium. Now, the praetorium is a word which means, I think some versions, English versions even translate it, it means judgment hall. It was a part of the palace that had like, like a large room of sorts, and they would have little hearings and things like that. And so they set up a little bed or something, I don't know, or cot in the corner, and that's where Paul stayed. The praetorium, Herod's praetorium, is, you can go now and see the foundation of it. It's remarkable. It, was, it must have been huge. Uh, it is right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Again, you could go there. You can kind of walk around to where, imagine where the rooms were. It even included a swimming pool that they made. This is pretty cool. Um, where like the water from the Mediterranean would fill the swimming pool and it would kind of come in with the waves but not go back out. And now you can swim around in like this cool swimming pool. Now, I don't know if Paul had access to the swimming pool, but he very well may have had access. My point is simply the accommodation. Paul's not real, like rotting away in a dungeon. He's waiting there in Caesarea as a resident of the Praetorium or Herod's house there that Felix is living in. And Felix says to him, I'll give you this uh, hearing when your accusers come. Now, this is going to be Paul's first opportunity to speak publicly. And when Paul spoke publicly, he preached to speak publicly to someone at this level of Roman authority. This will be his first opportunity that we know of, maybe bumped into someone here and there, that's recorded for us in the book of Acts, where he can speak to someone of this level of Roman authority, one of the governors of Rome. And I bring it up now because 25 years earlier, when Paul was converted, you remember he was going, he was a zealous Jew going into the city of Damascus. Uh, he was, he encountered a vision of the Lord. He was knocked down off of the horse or whatever it was that he was riding there. Uh, and the Lord spoke to him and he got saved. He was converted. Acts chapter 9, I believe, is that particular passage. He then went into the city of Damascus blind. He was led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And a brother of the Lord, not of the Lord, literally, but a brother in the Lord, a guy by the name of Ananias, God said, I want you to go to talk to that man. There's a guy in there. I want you to talk to him. I want you to deliver this message to him. This was the message, Acts 9.15. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings uh, and the children of Israel. So Ananias balked a little bit. 
I am not going to that guy. That guy's killing Christians, Lord. And the Lord said, no, I want you to go. This guy's a chosen instrument of mine. And he's going to proclaim, he's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel. This was the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise that he would speak to kings, Roman government officials, uh, that the Lord had made to Paul almost 25 years earlier. God is always faithful. He always is. His timing may not be the same as ours. We may wonder what he's doing. We may draw the conclusion that, you know what, I guess God changed his mind and has decided to do something else. Otherwise, he would have done it by now. But God is always faithful. And God was faithful here in the life of the Apostle Paul in a way that Paul might not have been noticing or seeing. And yet God's moving those chess pieces. Providentially, God is behind the scenes moving the pieces on the board to get Paul into the exact place that he desired for Paul to be that he might testify of him. Eventually, even before the emperor, perhaps. But for that, you'll have to come back next week to find out the exciting conclusion. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you're not just behind the scenes with somebody as important as the Apostle Paul. But Lord, you're behind the scenes in every single one of your children's lives, every single one of our lives. It was you that was at work that brought us to the place of faith. It's you that is at work in every area of our lives even now. And Lord, many times, uh, small, simple, wouldn't even notice it, but we can look back and we can see, and that increases our faith and it builds our faith. And yet, remarkably, in my life, I find that I still lack faith moving forward. And what are you going to do, God? And so, Lord, I pray that you would enlarge uh, our hearts to believe, that you would cause each one of us to trust you deeper, that we would cling to that, that memory verse which we had last week. That it's the Lord that goes before us. That it's the Lord that is with us. That it's the Lord that will not forsake us. That we have no reason to fear or to be dismayed. Because your perfect will will be accomplished in our lives. And Lord, we can just rest in that. We can take a deep breath and rest in that. Lord, you're very, very good. Amen.